everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I have a guest with me, Dr. Ronnie Bannock. Dr. Ronnie is a board-certified ophthalmologist and a fellowship-trained neuro-ophthalmologist with additional training in integrative and functional medicine, meaning she treats autoimmune and neurological conditions using a whole-body approach, focusing on the root cause of eye diseases. Dr. Rani is frequently featured as an expert in the media and has been interviewed on Good Morning America, CBS, NBC, ABC, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and Fox, amongst many others. On today's episode, we talk about how multiple sclerosis and other demyelinating diseases affect vision, red flags that should cause you to see an eye doctor, and the difference between eye doctors. The big question is, how does someone with MS actually improve their mobility, strength, energy, independence, the list goes on. My name is Dr. Gretchen Hawley, physical therapist and multiple sclerosis specialist. Welcome to the Missing Link Podcast. Tune in as I share the top strategies and exercises to help you gain control over your life with MS using research-driven insights and advice from top industry experts. Whether you're newly diagnosed or have had MS for over 30 years, whether you have relapsing MS or progressive MS, this podcast is for you. You're sure to feel empowered and inspired after each episode. Ready? Let's dive in. Dr. Rani, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gretchen, for having me. I've been really looking forward to our conversation. Of course. It was, oh my gosh, how many months ago now? Back in May, when we met in person for the Chronicon event, when we were on the same panel. And I had heard a bit about you before then, just Nitika, the founder of Chronicon, told me a bit about you. And as soon as she told me about you, I knew I wanted to have you on my podcast because you're just a wealth of knowledge in your area of expertise. So I'm excited to have you here. And we're going to be diving into so many questions about eyes and ophthalmology and MS. Can you first explain what your profession is and how you work with people who have MS, NMO, demyelinating diseases? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I'm board certified as an ophthalmologist and that's my primary training. And then I also did a fellowship in neuro-ophthalmology. So that is a field which combines neurology and ophthalmology as its name suggests. And basically it deals with all the connections between between the eye and the brain. So all the input that goes in from our eyes to the brain, how that information gets processed, and then how the brain also sends out signals to the eye and to the eye muscles, the visual system in terms of how we move our eyes, how we coordinate the visual input with the rest of the body, the rest of the neuronal system. So for example, balance, and then tracking, following, seeing, visualizing, tracking objects. So it's very complex. And then on top of that, I'm an ophthalmologist, neuro-ophthalmologist, and then I did some extra certification in functional and integrative medicine. And this is where the diet and the lifestyle and the holistic approaches come in because I really felt like it was so impactful using a holistic approach for my own health. I really wanted to take a deep dive into this area and be able to offer it to my patients. So now it's like a package deal where I take care of people's eyes and then their connections with their brain, with their visual system. And then I layer in all of these other 
very kind of practical tips that people can use, like you were saying earlier with nutrition, things you can do that are in your control that can really have an impact on your visual health and your brain health. That's awesome. And would you say that you typically are meeting with your clients for the first time in the beginning of a diagnosis or do they already have a diagnosis? At what point do you usually come into play? I would say it's about 50-50. Specifically, if we talk specifically about demyelinating disease and vision issues, many patients come in oftentimes in their, with their first episode of a demyelinating event, usually optic neuritis. And so sometimes I'm meeting them there at the very beginning of their health journey. And it's a very frightening time because they've lost vision and they really don't know what all this means. And to think that, oh, I may have a, a chronic disease like MS or NMO, it's quite scary. So many times it's at that junction where I meet them and then I help them through their whole process. And sometimes I also come across patients who perhaps have been diagnosed a while back and they've been on treatment when and they just want a more holistic approach. And then they seek me out for that reason because they feel like they want to be doing things other than medications or in conjunction with their medications. So then I work with them alongside in parallel with their providers. It's not that I replace their previous providers. I do everything alongside whatever their neurologist may recommend or their ophthalmologist may recommend. So it's really a team effort in that case. So both ends of the spectrum, I guess. Yeah. I guess. And so there's several different demyelinating diseases. There's MS, NMO, MOGAD. How many do you think there are? I think there are more. I, I would say those are the top three. And those are things that we can test for. The issue is there are probably other things, other conditions out there that we don't yet have a test for. You know, if you ask me this question 20, 25 years ago, I would say, okay, MS is the number one demyelinating condition that tends to affect vision. Then there's other bucket of the unknown, but now we have tests for that unknown. So we know how to diagnose NMOSD, which is neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder. Now we know how to diagnose MOGAD, which is uh, myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein associated disease. It's a mouthful. So now we've developed techniques, tests, not just MRIs, but also blood tests that can detect these conditions. But then there are patients who are negative for all the typical markers for MS, they're negative for NMOSD, they're negative for MOGAD, they have something else. And we put them into this category that we call idiopathic, which means we just don't know what the underlying cause is. But I think ultimately we'll have tests for those conditions also. So it's an evolving process. It's an exciting time, I would say, in terms of being able to diagnose these conditions because there is so much information we have now that we didn't have before. So now we're much better equipped to manage our patients in a very focused manner that maybe we didn't have before, like all of these, these tests and now specific treatments also. It's really great, I think, for patients and providers alike. Yeah. I went to a rare neuroimmune summit. Oh my gosh. I probably six or more years ago. And not that was that long ago, but even six years ago, there weren't these diagnostic tests to be super specific of what disease do you have. And they mentioned a lot of diseases that were demyelinating, but no way to test for it. So even just in the last six years, there's been so many advancements. Can you explain 
how MS and some of these other demyelinating diseases affect our vision and why that happens? Sure. So the eye is actually a direct extension of the brain. It's fascinating to think that it's actually part of the central nervous system. And the optic nerve is what carries visual information from our eye to our brain. And that optic nerve has the myelin sheath around it. So it's very important that myelin sheath because it helps to conduct uh, neuronal signals very quickly. So in MS and other demyelinating diseases, these autoimmune diseases tend to affect that myelin sheath. So when the myelin is not structurally intact, the signal gets delayed. And so many people will come in with myelination of their optic nerve, which is what we call optic neuritis. And usually the symptoms are, common symptoms are loss of central vision, loss of peripheral vision, loss of color vision, and also pain. Pain is really a critical feature because of the inflammation of the sheath. When people move their eye around, they may experience a a very distinct type of pain, like a very deep, tugging, uncomfortable sensation. And so these are all the things that the symptoms that people come in with, oftentimes with optic neuritis that we diagnose, but there are also patients who may be having some of these symptoms and they're not aware that they may be kind of red flags for active inflammation of their optic neuritis. So I think it's also important for patients if you do have, if you've been diagnosed with a demyelinating disease or there's a suspicion for a demyelinating disease to understand what some of these visual symptoms may be. If you experience them, you can go tell your neurologist, tell your ophthalmologist, okay, these are, this is what I'm having. Do you think it could be an attack? Could it be optic neuritis? Could it be something else? So your provider can be better equipped to help manage that issue that you may be having. Yeah, that would be so helpful to have a list of red flags because I feel like so many of us would really only seek out help if it's an extreme version, like complete loss of vision in one eye. Can you list some other red flags that we could be on the lookout for? Yeah, so I would say any kind of vision change. And again, if you have a a known diagnosis, super, be just be super aware because vision the best. So even if things look a little bit blurry, you're not sure what's going on. You think maybe it's a change in your prescription or maybe it's dry eye, definitely get it checked out. Other symptoms may include trouble with night vision. So trouble seeing at night, sometimes glare, also double vision. So this is a, a more uncommon type of visual symptom with demyelinating disease where people actually see two. If you have both eyes open, some people may see two images either side by side or one on top of the other or more kind of diagonal. So that's definitely a red flag. Another red flag is if you're looking at something and it's not stable, let's say if you're looking at an object and it's shaking or jiggling, that is another big red flag that there could be something going on, some demyelination, inflammation within the brain that's affecting vision. So these are, I would say, the biggest categories of vision issues with either MS is number one, but also NMO and MOGAD can cause these types of symptoms as well. Less so, but definitely they're on our radar when people come in with these symptoms. So would you recommend that if someone is experiencing one or maybe multiple of those red flags, should they wait a certain amount of time? Should it be happening for 24 hours before you reach out to someone or 48 hours or as soon as you notice it, should you reach out? Are you asking in the context of someone who already has the known history of demyelinating disease or someone who's not yet been diagnosed with demyelinating disease? I think that's important also. To yeah, let's do bit. both because that's a good differentiation. How about for each one? Okay, so if you have a known history of demyelinating disease, I would say if things don't clear up, 
up within 12 hours or so. Again, sometimes people do have dryness of the eyes that can cause some blurry vision. It can cause some discomfort. But if you have dryness, if you blink a few times, if you rub your eye, if you put some drops in, lubricating drops, it clears up. But if you do those things, if it does not clear up, then yes, get it checked out. Now, if you've never been diagnosed with any kind of demyelinating disease, the possibilities are a little bit broader. So maybe you could wait a day or two, but I would say definitely not more than that. And I'll give you a, a perfect example. I had a patient who came to see me recently who back in May, she wore contacts for years and years. Back in May, thought that something was off in her left eye. Things were smudged. She really couldn't focus properly. She thought it was her contact. So she changed her contact. It didn't help. And then she thought it was dry eye. She put in some drops. It didn't make it better. She went to see her optometrist. They changed her prescription. Still wasn't better. But the eye exam so far was okay. She was she still had relatively good vision, not 2020, but still relatively good vision. And then it took her two other providers. Then she was referred to an ophthalmologist who also didn't find anything. And then finally, a neurologist who said, okay, this could be optic neuritis. Let's do some tests. So this went on for almost two months before she actually was diagnosed with optic neuritis. And this is what was going on from the very beginning. So again, if the typical things don't help, putting in drops, changing your prescription, those don't help really go a little bit deeper and request. You have to be your own advocate when it comes to something like this. If you suspect there's something more serious going on, you need to really ask for those tests. Get that full exam done. Maybe ask for an MRI. Ask to be referred to a neuro-ophthalmologist to really try to figure out what is going on because you don't want to delay a diagnosis and delay in diagnosis and definitely not a delay in any treatment that could really help you get back the vision that you've lost. Yeah. Can you explain, if we have any listeners who are unaware, what the difference is between an ophthalmologist or even an optometrist and a neuro-ophthalmologist. Neuro, of course, we automatically assume deals with neuro conditions, but can you explain the difference? Because someone might be thinking, oh, I've been to an ophthalmologist and they didn't find anything, or I've been to an optometrist and didn't find anything. So how do we differentiate those three professions? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked because I think there's a lot of confusion about the eye care providers that are available. So first of all, there are three O's in the eye care world. There are ophthalmologists, there are optometrists and opticians. Let's start with opticians, actually. Opticians have gone to opticianry school. They have a degree and they basically make the glasses. When you go to an optical shop and you have the person who fits you with the frame and then grinds the glasses, they do that part. Optometrists are eye doctors who've gone to optometry school for four years. After undergrad, they do a four-year optometry degree. So they're the ODs, doctors of optometry. And they, depending on the state that they're working in, they have different scopes of practice. Most optometrists prescribe glasses. They do basic eye exams. They dilate the eyes. They check pressure. So they do basically like primary eye care, but they don't do in most states, they don't do any procedures, no surgeries. Ophthalmologists are medical doctors. So ophthalmologists have gone to medical school after undergrad. So four years of medical school, and then they've done additional training, internship and residency in ophthalmology. So they take care of the whole spectrum. So ophthalmologists, yes, can prescribe glasses, can do basic eye exams, but also can do surgery and also can prescribe medications and really like when there's more serious eye disease going on, they're the ones to take care of it. So whether it's a glaucoma issue, retina issue, 
cornea issue, neuro issue within ophthalmology, then there are subspecialties. And so the subspecialty of neuro-ophthalmology is one of the subspecialties in ophthalmology. Like I mentioned earlier, I did a fellowship in neuro-ophthalmology. So people who've done additional training in retina, for example, are retina specialists. If they've done additional training in glaucoma, they're glaucoma specialists. So neuro-ophthalmologists have done an extra year or two of training in neuro-ophthalmology. So really understanding the eye-brain connection. There are some specific tests that we do as neuro-ophthalmologists, which are, I would say, if you go to see a neuro-ophthalmologist, that's probably the most extensive eye exam you'll ever have because there are really many parts to the neuro-ophthalmic exam and it takes a very, very long time to do all the different parts to it. But we, again, have a certain kind of protocol that we follow when we're working up a patient which is different perhaps than what a retina specialist may do or different perhaps than what an optometrist may do as part of their regular workup. So it's a little bit more involved, I would say. Yeah, that's really helpful to know the difference. And if someone's been to, let's just say optometrist sounds like it's, is that the person we go to every year just to get our eyes checked or would that be more of the optician? So it wouldn't be the optician because they're the ones who make the glasses. It would either be an optometrist or your regular ophthalmologist who can both do general eye exams. Yeah. So I think an annual eye exam could be by either one. And then if either one saw something a little bit more suspicious, then they would maybe refer you to a specialist in that particular area. Perfect. That was my next question of how do we get to a neuro-ophthalmologist. So it probably your primary care could refer you or your neurologist or your optometrist. Yes. And anyone could refer you. The only issue is that as a neuro-ophthalmologist, we're a very small group of people. There aren't that many of us. And so sometimes the wait times can be very long. So neuro-ophthalmologist, depending on where you are, the wait time can be a couple of weeks to even six months or longer. So even if your doctor refers you to a neuro-ophthalmologist, it can be a while before you get that appointment. The other kind of I don't want to say way around it, but the way, if you really feel like you need to see a neuro-ophthalmologist, the other thing you can do is if you go to an academic center where there is a residency program, usually there's a neuro-ophthalmologist on faculty or several neuro-ophthalmologists on faculty. And so it may be easier to get in that way if you go to an academic center and request to be referred to a neuro-ophthalmologist. That's a nice loophole. Yes. Your primary care tries to refer you directly could be months before you see somebody. But if you go in the other way, there are pluses and minuses to it. So if you go into an academic center, sometimes it's a clinic setting. There's a really busy kind of a waiting room and you have to wait and wait and wait and wait. So it may require more waiting on your part for that day, but it may speed things up ultimately to get in to see this, the specialist. And can an ophthalmologist or neuro-ophthalmologist do telehealth visits too? If someone lives really far away, but they needed to see this specialist, can it be done virtually or does it really have to be done in person? It depends on the provider. So there are specific tests that need to be done in person, but if those tests have already been done by another provider, let's say an optometrist or ophthalmologist, telemedicine can be done. So what I do in my practice is I see patients in person, but I also do telehealth. And for patients who live far away, I tell them, send me all of your records first, whether you've seen an ophthalmologist, optometrist, it doesn't matter, send everything to me. And then I'll take a look at it. I'll review it. If there's anything that has not not yet been done, I'll request it be done before I see them. Or for example, if they need an MRI or MRA or blood work, I can order that. Again, knowing what's been done, knowing what the exam shows, 
even if I have not seen the patient in person. Now, that being said, there are also state regulations about licensing. So if you're seeing a doctor who's maybe not in your local vicinity, just make sure that you're in the state that they practice in. For example, I'm based in New York State. And I'm only licensed in New York State. I can only see patients who are in New York State. So there's all kinds of licensing regulations that go along with that. So when you make your appointment, just call and ask about that as well, if you're interested in telehealth. That's good to know. Physical therapy is the same way where I can only work with people in the same states I'm licensed in, but neurologists is not. Neurologists can cross state lines. You also have to abide by those states, but many neurologists, especially for doctors who do things like my migraine, they may be licensed in multiple states. So that helps also to be able to provide access and care to people who maybe are living in more remote areas or they may not have, they may have to drive like three hours to go see a specialist. So it does really make a big difference in terms of improving access to care. Yeah, absolutely. States are pretty big. So if you can find someone in this state, even if they're on the opposite end, there'll be increased access. Thank you for listening to today's show. I am so grateful to have you as a listener. If you'd like extra resources, such as a video of one of my seated exercise classes, my favorite core exercises, and the opportunity to ask me your questions, head to missinglink.com forward slash insider. That link will be shared in the show notes along with links to my social media handles. If you loved this episode and think a friend or family member with MS would benefit from listening, please go ahead and text or email this podcast to them right now. Sharing this podcast will help me educate and empower as many MS warriors as possible. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Missing Link Podcast.